0: Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Now, I'm really looking forward to this show as back on the podcast is Professor Kate Domit, one of the UK's absolute top rank experts on political campaigning, data and the internet. So Welcome back to the show, Kate, and I should also say belated congratulations because you weren't a professor last time we spoke here.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Mark. It's a delight to be back.
0: (laughs) I'm sure the... Presence on this podcast was a key part of the impact statement that helped you get your promotion.
1: <laughs> Always. I definitely would not be uh, leaving this off.
0: <laughs> anyway, you've got a new book out, data driven Campaigning and Political Parties, which obviously we will talk about. But before we plunge into what you found in your studies for that and therefore what your thoughts are on the use of data and political campaigning sort of in the future, let's start just with a look backwards at Cambridge Analytica. Because, actually, it's always, the Cambridge Analytic scandal is always of interest to me, partly because before they had that name and before they became notorious, I went for a job interview with them. Thankfully, the job interview didn't go so well. Close escape, perhaps. But although they did so, then become really notorious, so notorious they went out of business, I think there's still quite a lot of doubt as to whether their scary-sounding big data campaigning they were known for... Actually worked. What's your take on, with hindsight and with all the research that's been done since? What's your take on whether they actually were able to really move voters in scary ways or not?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think kind of Cambridge Analytica is where it's what most people are familiar with when they think about data and politics. I think it's kind of probably worth by saying to start with that you know Cambridge Analytica is a kind of bit of a folk devil. I think there's Mm. a lot of they've almost become kind of emblematic of a set of fears around data and online manipulation. And they're asked a lot of questions about, you know, whether they were actually ever doing the things that they said they could do. But to kind of answer your question, so I think one of the main things that Cambridge Analytica were associated with, with this kind of personality profiling and then targeting based on those profiles of your personality. So are you an extrovert? We'll give you this kind of advert. You know, are you an introvert? You get to see something different. Now, there has been a little bit of research on this. So there's a really nice study that's been done by some scholars in Amsterdam. And they they basically found that people are more persuaded by ads that match their own personality. And they particularly looked at this introverted, extroverted Mm. thing. And they they found that, you know, introverted people generated higher voting intentions when they were targeted, with negative, fear-based political ads, mm. whereas extroverted citizens had higher voting intentions after receiving a positive, like enthusiast, enthusiasm-based political ad. So there is some evidence that that kind of targeting can have good effects. But I, what I would say is that doesn't necessarily mean this is actually being done. And um, you know, we've spoken to kind of over three hundred campaigners um, in five countries for the book. And I've not really heard anyone within a political party talking about doing this. So I think it's worth saying that. And then I also think it's probably worth saying about what we know about the effects of ads more generally, which is that actually they have very small effects on um, voting intention. So there's kind of one study that looked at 59 experiments and it found 0.7 effects on vote choice of seeing a political ad. And that wasn't statistically significant. So, you know, there may be kind of something going on here, but I think we need to be quite cautious about this idea that, you know, online political advertising can manipulate people.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I'm always slightly torn by findings like that last one that you mentioned, because I think Florian Foos was on this podcast a few months ago. And I'll include a link to that podcast in the show notes for listeners as well. And Florian makes a similar point, yeah, you know, looking at similar you know, studies as, as you have looked at. That the research for individual campaign effects suggests very little impact for most things. But people like myself believe that if we rock up to say a council by-election in a ward where we've never worked the ward before and do the full works of a leafleting, canvassing, etc. campaign, that we can get 20, 30, 40% swings. That, and I think if you look at council by-elections, I think are a good, good, because they're the closest you get to sort of genuine. A-B testing and so on, because you can look at two by-elections where both wards weren't worked by a party at all last time, but were worked in the campaign, et cetera. And I I, I don't think I'm simply deluding myself or my colleagues are simply deluding themselves in thinking that there is a full package of a campaigning, at least, that does really move voters in large numbers. And so I think there is a genuine uncertainty, isn't there, as to where... Is it that we're just doing so many things that all the little bits add up or is there some more fundamental revolution in our academic understanding of campaign effects that's to come that would reconcile? It feels a little bit like if this is not too portentous, the problem physicists have in reconciling the quantum level and the sort of relativity level, you know, how do you, how do you actually glue the two together, how do you glue together what you find and what I go and do in that sense, <laughs> in a compatible world view?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good question, and you know, I think it probably is a little bit of give and take in both directions. So, you know, as academics, to be able to study effects in this kind of space, you know, you really have to isolate and try and reduce the number of variables you're looking at. You know, so if it's the kind of case of, you know, what impact does a door knock have? You know, you want to try and remove the impact of as many other variables as possible. And then so that you can actually tell, you know, what is the kind of cause and effect of, of one thing to the other. But that means that, you know, the kind of compound effect of multiple campaign activities, you know, a broader social discourse going on, you know, you can't capture all that within an academic study in, you know, in the kind of way that you'll be picking up on the ground when you're out campaigning, it's a much more dynamic environment. But, you know, even saying that, you know, the kind of academic literature just show that campaigns have effects, you know, three to 5%, even some studies find a slightly higher, It is small, but that can be consequential. And I think, you know, having observed a number of campaigns over the years, you do get a sense that sometimes you go into an area that's not being campaigned and it really does feel like you're making a difference. But it's, you know, we're kind of talking in slightly different languages, I think. So maybe you're feeling a stronger effect than there is, but maybe we are kind of studying things in isolation as opposed to kind of compound effects.
0: And there's also, I'm sure, a difference between the volume and intensity of activity in, say, a marginal seat and the national overall average. So you might say that an overall campaign in a general election might have quite a small effect, but that might be because in most seats not very much is happening or it doesn't move very many voters, and yet it, in the marginal seats you might still have an effect that the campaigners and the voters in those seats, you know, very much notice and could influence the results. So I, I guess there are ways of reconciling the the micro and the macro scales In that sense, which I guess is partly what you got into in your book, because one of the points you mentioned related to Cambridge Analytica was that there's not only a doubt about how effective what they were doing or what they claimed they were doing really was. There's also the question about actually what are the practicalities of being able to do it. You know, if you want to target people by personality type, practically can you get enough personality type data, etc. So, what did you? What's the sort of summary of what you found in your book of looking at the? practical realities of what people like myself get up to.
1: <laughs> yeah so essentially the kind of motivation behind this book was was in large part the kind of stories I've had to counter with with Cambridge Analytica because we kind of saw this idea and there's you know a lot of academics have written about data-driven campaigning about what was happening in the US and you know the fact that Digital technology had provided this access to personal data as never before, and that that was allowing new techniques to to happen and new modes of persuasion. And when you kind of looked at the foundation of what people were saying, it was kind of all became quite slippery quite fast because, you know, a lot of people were relying on the kind of sales pitches of companies or uh, the stories of success that certain campaigners were saying. And we kind of had this question of, well, actually, you know, what does this term mean? Like, what is data-driven campaigning and how distinct is it from what was going on in the past? But then actually kind of what does that look like in practice? And so the book aimed to really kind of drill down and actually just do quite a basic story to start with about what is this thing that we're talking about? And actually, what does it look like in different places? And one of the big motivations that we had is that, I had a a collaborator in Australia and a collaborator in Germany. And all three of us kind of felt that the campaigning that we were seeing parties in our countries doing wasn't quite living up to what was happening in the US. So essentially in the book, we kind of set about to try and define what is data-driven campaigning. And we separate the activity out into the kind of use of data, the use of analytics and the use of technology. And then we study each of those three things and try and classify what's happening within each of those categories. And we also then look at the people who are now involved in campaigning. And by doing that, we kind of aim to build up this picture of like, well, actually, what does it mean? Like what is the data that is being gathered? What is the analytics mm-hmm. processes that are going on? And how much commonality and difference is there across different countries? So we do a kind of lot of work really talking through examples about <laughs> what the practices are of particular parties in different places. So I'm going to chat you just through one example that I Mm. think is illustrative. Mm. So if we take kind of data, so we kind of distinguish between four different types of data that are available for campaigning. So there's kind of publicly available Mm. data, disclosed data. So kind of stuff like canvassing, basically what electors tell you, inferred data, and then monitoring data. So the kind of monitoring might be, something like uh, using tracking pixels, for example, Mm. on websites, or it could be something more internal, like contact rates. So you kind of take those types of data and then you look in different countries as what's going on. And what you find is that, you know, in the UK, publicly available data is still incredibly important Mm. for data-driven campaigning. So things like the electoral roll, the marked register that tells us who has actually gone out and cast the, the British election study, census records, like that is really the foundation of the c- data that UK parties use to campaign. But you compare that to what's going on in Germany or look at other European countries, and there the kind of publicly available data is very different. So it's it's actually quite a kind of Anglo-centric thing to have an electoral role. And even if there are kind of publicly available data in other European countries, it's not as individualized and personalized as it is in the UK. So you can quite quickly see that parties in Germany, for example, have very different information about their voters provided Mm. to the state. So, for example, you have to kind of request six months before an election access to a, a very defined bit of data from the state. And then it doesn't give you individual level records, which means that you can't go out and do the door knocking that allows you to record the voter ID of an individual voter. And that means that they can't do the kind of individual, you know, direct mail letters that you can in the UK, they have to do more group based targeting. So you can kind of see that by understanding the types of data that it's possible to get in a particular country, you see these kind of almost different variants of data driven campaigning um, emerge in different contexts. And you also see this uh, between parties in the same national context. So, you know, we know that not every political party has the money available to be able to buy polling to the same extent. So Labour and the Tories, for example, in the UK will have extensive internal polling data in a way that, you know, Lib Dems, Greens, SNP will have less simply because they can afford less. So you end up seeing different parties in different countries with different types of data. And that then affects the kind of way that they use that data So what we try and do is kind of classify what's going on and then use that to tell stories about how data is being used differently in different places. Now, why we do all that is because of essentially the kind of debate that's emerged around data-driven campaigning is is something that's inherently problematic.
0: Mm. And we
1: basically try and say, you know, we don't think that's the case. Like The use of data is actually really long standing. Parties have been door knocking in the UK for decades. This isn't something that's inherently problematic, but by understanding exactly what is going on on the ground, you can kind of have a more sophisticated debate about, well, where are the boundaries, what's okay and what's not okay? And by also understanding why things vary by party and by country, you also get a better understanding of what you could do to try and make data-driven campaigning more acceptable in a particular context. So the book as a whole really tries to kind of get into this more sophisticated debate about what's happening by recognising that there's a lot of difference under the surface.
0: And I think one of the common features of previous research, including your own, which presumably the book finds as well, is that the use of data by political parties for campaigning is less glamorous, exciting, widespread and scary than in a way the media reports typically take because you get into lots of practical, logistical, legal, et cetera uh, constraints. And therefore, what makes for a really nerve shredding long read in a Sunday newspaper is often quite a few steps removed from the reality of what people do. Is that there's a risk, obviously, of that being quite a sort of complacent, almost sort of Luddite type view. But so, having had a recent look at the data, is that still your? your sort of take, that the the reality is just a bit more beige?
1: I would say so. And, you know, I think there's obviously like the kind of what's technically possible. You know, it would be possible to micro-target to a tiny degree and to get, you know, very niche audiences and to really do a lot of message testing and work out, you know, how to drive those audiences. But I think we kind of almost forget who we're dealing with. You know, these are political parties, they have very high risk tolerance. <laughs> like they really see that risk as low risk tolerance, is that's what I meant. They really see the danger of doing this. And, you know, also we know that parties tend to be laggards. You know, they're not the ones that are kind of pushing innovative practice. They tend to be quite slow to change. You know, often like dependent on the particular party uh, in question, you know, it's quite hard sometimes for central offices to have control. So, you know, it, the internal dynamics of how a party operates means that it's often quite, it's often best to keep things simple. And, you know, one of the, we ask this question of all our interviewees, which, you know, what's the single most important bit of data that you have? And, you know, again and again and again, we heard, oh, well, it's the electoral roll. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, oh, we we know what your interest is on Facebook or, you know, that you bought a cappuccino last week. It's where do you live and did you turn out to vote last time? And who are you planning to vote on for next time? You can't really go too sophisticated with that information.
0: Yeah. And I guess that reflects as well research from the US, I think particularly of Ethan Hershey's book from a few years ago now, where by some miracle of research brilliance, uh, he managed to get access to both Democrat and Republican data for the same people. And so was able to compare in a, I think, unique, certainly I've not come across it in other published research, you know, a unique, just how the data compares in terms of do different parties have the same data. And But one, his big conclusion really was, when you get into all of the details, even in the US with their much bigger budgets, the politics, It's really quite simple, the number of data variables. But the thing that the point that he made, which I think is very relevant is even so, is that what this also means is that decisions such as what data is publicly provided to candidates and parties has a surprisingly large impact on how campaigns operate. And so the fact that in the UK, we political parties are provided with the electoral register, But are not provided with any political affiliation, whilst in the US you do get self-registering as Republican or Democrat or Independent in most, though not all states, has a big impact in how political, and one could say it's perhaps one of the reasons why politics is so polarised in the US is the basic data starting point is that you can look at, you know, just the registered Republicans or just the registered democrats in a way that in the uk you can't start in such a narrow view but 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 you you mentioned earlier interestingly that you the the three of you initially were all thinking that oh the story in our country isn't quite the same as the glamorous us do you think that's because the us is really glamorous or because actually that glamorous reputation you know is one that as ethan hirsch's work suggests actually that isn't the us story either but it's just from a distance we're in awe of the us
1: yeah i think that's a really good point so there is a very good academic in the US, Jesse baldwin Felipe, who's written a lot about the myth of data-driven campaigning. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the very early conversations I had with her was about how the kind of focus on the US presidential campaign also massively overstates actually what reality mm-hmm. is down yeah. the ballot. And she was saying, you know, a lot of her work is as soon as you kind of get beyond those really high profile election races mm. is that data is actually really poor and is kind of a lot more equivalent to what you find in the UK than it is in those big presidential debates and I think you know the, the kind of difference the main difference is is that it's possible to buy a lot more data mm. in the US now that doesn't necessarily mean that data is high quality uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's like easy to integrate and I think we've repeatedly seen the kind of democrats and republicans struggle with data integration and how you actually get all this massive data they have available to be uh, useful but i think we look over to the us and go wow the scale of what they have available and the lack of privacy regulation means that it is possible to do forms of analysis and forms of targeting and contact that just aren't possible here and there's so many more channels of communication that they can utilize i think as campaigners, we kind of look over there and think, ah, if only we could, you know, advertise on over the top telly, everything would be sold.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, a few years ago, I went, did a sort of round of contacting people like Experian to get their data on me, just out of curiosity. And I think the one thing that was striking was that you could tell it's a fairly regulated area in that I, all of them, you know, made me jump through some hoops, but basically, you read the conditions and the process carefully you can get the data you know it feel it feel like very much it was in the regulated area where they know they have to play ball but secondly was how mixed the quality was of the data and so if you take experian who are one of the market leaders i'm sure their rivals would say they've got better data than experian but you know experian are probably a good yardstick for quality of data overall now i live in a flat so maybe it's a bit easier to get my data muddled up with people from the other flat in the building, for example. But but I've lived in the address that I've lived in for quite a long time. And therefore, you'd have thought. And, you know, I, I'm moderately conscious about opting out of stuff and all of that. But I also actually do quite like marketing aimed at me to be more tailored to my interests. So I'm not, you know, super puritanical. And yet I just think the data they had about me was just a bit ugh. I think there is a fascinating, whether it's piece of journalism or maybe academic research to do at some point to systematically for a, you know, a large group of people get their data and actually look at how good and complete is it really? Because of course, all the commercial firms will tell you about how wonderful it is because they're selling it to you. But I think the reality and apologies to Experian, I'm sure the same would apply to your rivals as well, if I could remember the details of those. But Experian was the one that stuck in my mind of this doesn't. I'm not scared. I'm, if anything, slightly bemused and relieved. (laughs) I want it, turns out. You think you know about me. And also, but also there are some items, aren't there? Like Experian thought that I was quite generous at giving money to charity, where I sort of thought, well, I guess some people might not like that to be a record about them somewhere, because that might mean they get more charitable donation requests, et cetera. But it doesn't feel awful. You know, I must admit, I don't have a gut Recoil from oh my goodness, somebody somewhere has got some data that says I'm a bit generous. You know, <laughs> there are sure many people think far worse things of me. So what I but just to sort of come back to sort of the an earlier question about it, is is this all basically too complacent a bit a picture we're painting in particular, given that artificial intelligence is the new fashionable bugbear to worry about. And I guess it could turn out that AI is a bit like Cambridge Analytica, as in massively overhyped, the dangers on it. But maybe AI, because it will allow things to be done efficiently at scale, will overcome some of those logistical problems we've talked about and actually unleash a whole world of new campaigning where it becomes possible to do things in a way that just wasn't practical before. So yeah, how scared about AI are you?
1: So I think that's a kind of new technology thing here. And I think, you know, it is really easy to, to be fearful. And to you know, it's unknown. And I think we tend to kind of have this techno pessimism when any new technology comes out and kind of over, over egg the potential or the kind of insight that's available. And, you know, so you were kind of talking about data being inaccurate, you know, I think that's a really real, real point, you know, We kind of almost assume that data is always really accurate and insightful, but often it really isn't, especially when it's inferred. And even, you know, on the doorstep, you can, you know, if you door knock someone and they give you a bit of an angry response and you put in against, you know, it's very easy to record data when actually that person might have just been interrupted and they're actually quite favorable on another day, you know, but that data suddenly becomes quite hard and fixed and it's hard to roll
0: that back Yeah, in, in Lib Dem parlance there's a continued debate about when to tick somebody as refused or not and it is exactly yeah. that. It's the the person I mean I once genuinely canvassed somebody who had whose partner had literally just returned a couple of hours earlier from hospital with newborn baby and so his refusal to talk to me I you know I put them down as not in it I think it wasn't really a refusal it was picking about as bad at I've also once called on somebody when awake was actually happening in the house and again you sort of think that isn't really a refusal but with lots with the more normal experiences it's, it's very hard even for experienced canvassers, often to distinguish yeah. between the you have really called at a, at a bad time versus actually no I hate you and I'm just closing the door as quickly as possible on you
1: yeah there's a really brilliant book by Rasmus Nielsen called Ground Wars which is kind mm, a- yeah. of US campaigns which talks about his experience of watching people do
0: it's so How depressing though them, if you're a campaign organizer <laughs> because he reveals the horrible mismatch between what canvassers get told to do and then what they actually do do
1: yeah it's you know ultimately this is human I think I <laughs> got okay, to pull it kind of back to your question about yeah. AI because I went off on a bit of a, yeah. a tangent I think you know AI I think is it, it is being talked about as the kind of latest scary thing and you know I don't I'm not kind of saying we should be completely complacent you know obviously there is a big threat I think the the stuff around deep fakes and our ability to recognize and troubleshoot and you know effectively put out corrections and um, when a deep fake comes out is something we really do need to be aware of and I think it's going to be a really big question for particularly for the media and for political elites how they handle that but you know where I've actually seen AI being used in parties and it you know it's it's very early days in the UK. It tends to be kind of experimentation. A, a lot of parties aren't thinking about this yet, but it is around that kind of efficiency, the checking, the kind of data analysis that people are using it. And, you know, just to give you an anecdote, I was slightly horrified when this happened, but when we were doing the proofs of this book, my colleague uploaded the book to ChatGBT and got it to highlight all of the um, typos that we'd made. I was slightly, slightly horrified that he'd put it put it in, and now we're part of the database. But it flagged a load of things that we'd missed, and we were able to, you know, make a number of corrections based on the AI and what
0: tool. level of sophistication. Was it that it, in terms of spotting things that was missed, was it very basic, sort of missing word, comma in the wrong place type things, or was it being a little bit more apparently intelligent than that? Like this sentence that didn't follow from the previous.
1: Very basic, just kind of, you know, this looks like the wrong word here and, you know, this doesn't quite make sense or there's a formatting error or something. It was, you know, so very basic stuff, but, you know, we'd read and proofed that book many, I, many times.
0: But I guess it potentially, even if it isn't yet, potentially those large language models can be or could be really good at things like word ordering in sentences because they're basic, the basic skill that they have is typically which word follows which word in a sentence and so things like word order which can actually be quite hard to teach and quite hard to get better at because in a sense it's quite an instinctive form of language um yeah I can imagine they could be really good for fine tuning wording in a way that's a definite step above what current automatic proofing and so on tools do
1: yeah definitely and you know things like You know, we're already seeing students using the kind of paraphrasing AI to slightly reword things. You know, imagine that you're sitting in central office and you're trying to come up with new phrasing for the 300th fundraising email that you've put out from the party. You know, pulling open paraphrasing AI and putting it in and getting it put in different words for you to give you a bit of inspiration could be a really time saving tool. So I think that's where we're going to see AI is that kind of support to help with those routine functions that are really time consuming or where people just might be slightly missing, you yeah. know, missing errors in text or not seeing patterns in data. I think it's going to be there. We'll see the innovations to start with rather than campaigns creating
0: deep fakes. And this tees up nicely. a thought about another professor, Phil Cowley, is his aptly named Cowley's Law, which is, quote, there is an inverse relationship between the importance of any election campaign technique and the amount of media coverage devoted to it, which is a very Phil thing to say, but I think his point was, I think when he originally made it, was that various online campaigning at the time was getting huge amounts of attention, but direct mail was getting almost no attention. Although if you look at things like campaign budgets, direct mail was, and indeed still is, you know, the huge campaign beast in the room. So you'll get almost no accounts of modern British political campaigning, for example, that will talk about the evolution of increasing, lo- increasingly localised references to constituencies in parties' national direct mail campaigning, even though that is one of the most significant alterations in how campaigns have been ru- uh, run and so on in this century. But you'll get loads of stuff about whatever was the fashionable social media network at the time of that article or book was written. And it sounds like you're sort of coming at it from a, a different angle, but in a way to a slightly similar conclusion to Phil that the particularly for AI, the the further away you are from the, the headlines and the stage lights, the bigger its impact may well be that it's the behind the scenes stuff that is where where change will happen.
1: Yeah, I'd really agree with that. And I want to know what I have to do to get my own law. Sounds uh, very exciting.
0: As I recall, A, Phil named The Law himself, he just decreed it was a law. And B, he basically bluffed me into writing about it by saying that his mother would really love it if it it appeared in print ever. So I I wrote a blog post with it in, so...
1: Well, all my relatives would love it if I got my own law. So we we'll have to work out
0: what Kate's law is from the, the <laughs> words of wisdom that you're saying at the moment. But
1: well, I think I, th- I think to the point you're making though, we've actually just we just had a paper accepted, so it should be out hopefully mm. by the time this podcast out, which is exactly on this point because I kind of one of the frustrations that I've always had with studying data driven campaigning in particular. Is that you're reliant on what people will tell you they're doing, and actually studying what they're doing is very difficult in practice, largely because it's all it's all back office. Mm. It's you know it's not transparent. So we did this. Sam Parra and two other people. Sam's were a long term collaborator. We both have a love of financial spending returns. So we spent basically a year and a half opening every single invoice from the 2019 election. And we basically think that the electoral commission categories are pretty useless. So there's nothing on digital, for example. So it's pretty impossible to tell what money is actually being spent on. So we opened every invoice, we double coded it. And what we were doing is we were looking for a kind of more accurate representation of what was actually being paid for in the invoice. And we classified it was kind of around six thousand invoices we did this for, um, and we were able to kind of classify. Well, what, what where was there evidence of data driven campaigning in spending returns, and where was there evidence of activity associated with early campaign areas? And what we found is that only eighteen point six percent of spending could be classified as data driven campaigning. So we found invoices. Some of them were brilliant. You find. Money is spent on very bizarre things when you do this. Mm. But there was a lot that was going on kind of message testing or app development. I think the Labour Party paid uh, a company for a social media bot we found in one of them. But it, you know, 18.6% was tiny. And actually, the vast majority of money, as you said, was going on campaign material printing and on paid leaflet delivery. And particularly within the Lib Dems, is that we found that. know what's kind of known in academic literature is like phase one and two so those kind of early post-war kind of up to the 80s the campaign activities associated with that period of time there that was what the Lib Dems are still spending on but what we were able to do by classifying like this is compare the amount of and the percentage of spend for each political party in the UK and what how much they were using Mm campaign associated with different eras. And so what we find is like Labour, for example, are investing much more in the kind of data-driven campaign tools as a percentage of their campaign spend than the Liberal Democrats are. And then because we hand code and there's there's kind of subcategories within each of our categories, we can kind of open up and go, all oh, right, so this party is spending this much on consultants, this party is spending this much on social media advertising, on online advertising, and so we can compare across all of these different categories to get more of a sense of where is yeah. actually going. But the headline is, very little of it is going on all of this flashy new stuff. Yeah. The vast majority for all parties is going on long-standing, very well established, very traditional, but not very newsworthy campaign tools.
0: So I, in you saying that, I'm reminded of the talk the the Political Studies Association gave to a talk that you recently gave, which is really interesting. I'll include a link to it in the show notes where you talked about AI, but also this question about whether the next election will be the TikTok election. And so I think what you say and what the research shows prompts the question about maybe the question we should be asking is: Will the next election be the TikTok election, or will it be the Zoom election? Because (laughs) people running campaigns will spend hours and hours and hours on zoom calls during the election and maybe that's where the real effect of technological change will will play out in the election away from the headlines but you know completely dominating people's day-to-day activities as campaign organizers campaign managers press officers and the like
1: yeah definitely and I think you know The coverage of every single election, you know, I think when I very first started studying this, it was kind of like, you know, the website election, then it was the social media Mm. election, you know, there's always something.
0: The first Facebook election, the first Twitter election.
1: (laughs) Exactly. But I think, you know, the actual story about how technology is affecting political parties is a lot of it is internal and it's just become very routinized into how parties operate. Mm. So, you know, I think one of the most interesting things that's going to be happening is like the extent to which parties start using like the WhatsApp communities, for example, as ways of having this kind of top down, you know, internal communication channels direct to activists on their phones, and then getting activists to share content through their own mobile networks. I think that's probably more likely to be a dominant feature than TikTok because TikTok on my site, if you really invest in it, it's a good way to kind of communicate with a certain group of young voters but it requires you to create a particular type of content that not wanting to say anything slightly derogatory but politicians maybe sometimes find it a little awkward to kind of create these kind of fun are you suggesting politicians on
0: average are not quite cool (laughs) enough to be on tiktok
1: potentially it feels a little counterintuitive sometimes and i think you know the problem is, is to do well on tiktok you need a lot of engagement you need people like liking or sharing or interacting with your post and so it needs to be kind of shocking or counterintuitive and you know it comes back to that risk point it's like you know either you want a politician dancing and doing something silly which runs a rec- reputational mm-hmm. risk you know or saying something inflammatory to get engagement so that it becomes more prominent well that's a bit of a risk and i think a lot of candidates will look at tiktok and kind of probably invest a fair amount of time experimenting with it come to the conclusion that the content that they're willing to create isn't actually going to get that much of an audience and will probably back away from it in favor of things like facebook which are a bit more familiar and where you can kind of play to get an audience and you you can't do political ads on tiktok it's banned so, coming
0: back to your point about how the sort of hidden logistical factors are so important, there's the basic geo-targeting question, isn't there? That yeah, you know, it, it's really hard to geo-target TikTok or indeed Twitter, for example, activity so that if you're a candidate in a parliamentary constituency, let alone if you're a candidate in a council ward, say, you can target it at just the voters who really matter to you, and that's quite different from, say, Facebook, where Facebook, for all that it's cut back some of its targeting abilities, you can still do a level of geographic targeting that is much more useful at the scale at which political campaigns need to operate. And that is, I mean, because TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, etc, all acting under the same data, you know, regulatory framework, that is purely a accidental side effect of a commercial decision that all of those social networks have made for other reasons in terms of what advertising ability they. To... but it, it's why yeah Facebook has a role in a way that TikTok doesn't isn't it because you can try to actually reach the voters who really yeah. matter to you
1: yeah definitely and you know I, yeah Facebook and Google particularly they kind of align more than other platforms to the electoral dynamics of our system I think the only kind of thing I'll say on this is that I think parties are, this is why digital so hard is it's like a different strategy for everything. Every different channel requires you to master and learn how it works and develop strategy. Now, the only way I can see TikTok working is around the kind of influencer culture. So this Mm -hmm. is, we've seen in the US that we've seen in Canada and France where political parties work with influencers who have an audience that they know they want to reach and they get coverage, not through their own accounts but by giving access or, you know, doing kind of guest appearances on the accounts of people who've already got that audience. So I think that is the only potential that I could see with TikTok is, you know, if a local candidate were to almost do an audit of who within their constituency has an existing audience that they might be able to engage, and then reaching out to those influencers and doing appearances through them, then I think TikTok has a little bit more appeal. But you're probably not going to be creating your own account to do that in a way that you would create your own account on Facebook or on Google so it's it's kind of different tactics for every different technology which given just how much there is to do within a campaign campaigners will have to decide where are they going to put their energy and what is actually worth it for their particular um seat
0: and I think on that social media influencers question there's a reason for legitimate doubt about how useful that is as a tactic in politics, because we know that there are there's a many decades-long track record of celebrities in politics seeming to have fairly limited impact. You know, whether it, it was David Beckham and Jeremy Clarkson for the Remain campaign in the, you know, the European referendum, or going further back to Jim Davidson for the Conservative Party, you know, in the sort of 70s and 80s, that it it's not clear that celebrities really have much of an impact in that sense in a way that we do know that in the commercial world celebrity endorsements for big brands etc can be massively valuable and so whilst social media influencers are being have been for a while you know quite an important part of the armory for say traditional brand marketing in the commercial world perhaps we should just expect it to continue to not really work in politics because politics is different. And therefore the fact that TikTok offers a new way of doing it hasn't changed the fundamental reasons why, you know, it 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 works to sign up a big name celeb if you've got a perfume to market, but it doesn't if you've got a political policy paper to market.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And, it, you know, it is really hard to measure the effects of you know what an influencer brings in terms of a campaign. I think, you know... The logic that I would see behind it is, you know, we know that the influences upon people's political opinions, you know, tends to be kind of friends and family that have the strongest influence. So influences, I guess, you know, it's a way of kind of generating that kind of shareable content that might enter into discussions with friends and family. You know, you might, you're more likely to kind of share a clip of Jeremy Corbyn Mm to Stormzy than you would be to share a political advert so it's a kind of content that is a little bit more shareable and relational that I think is that's kind of where the logic of why you would invest in that is it's trying to just get that attention and prompt those conversations which we know are really important in terms of shaping people's decision making and their attention to politics because you know you can pay for an awful lot of ads you can notionally get a lot of impressions but someone actually looked and absorbed what's in your online political ad? You know, arguably someone sharing discussion with an influencer, people are more likely to absorb it and read it if it's coming from their friend on their phone than they are if they're scrolling past an ad on Facebook. So it's really hard to kind of monitor the effect of these things, but I think there is quite a strong logic for why it might be influential.
0: And I think particularly if in some way the influencer is somehow logically relevant to the message in you know and obviously again in the commercial sort of brand marketing world it can seem like a fairly tenuous connection but there is something around like you know you know i mean why would i particularly choose a brand of coffee machine because of who is the famous american hollywood actor who has appeared in their adverts well there is a sort of logic around well if they're a glamorous person and i want to believe i'm living a glamorous life then i get that coffee machine it, it, in a sense, the connection is a lot harder in politics normally. I guess if somebody like, say, Martin Lewis were to decide to endorse somebody in the election, that potentially would be really powerful because there is a sense of him being you know genuinely a remarkable champion of all sorts of good causes, including causes that are related to how is, is our financial sector regulated. So if he thinks a politician is a good person to be in charge of regulating finances, that feels like that would be really relevant. But if, you know, the road racing cyclist who I most admire endorses a candidate, I just, what's, you know, what's the sort of connection there? You know, it's, it, it, it so. No, so you're yeah, definitely can... right.
1: It's a really risky game. And I think, you know, working out who it is worth reaching out to engage with, I think, especially for national passes, they'll want to be like courting very high profile people with a reputation in a specific area I think for for local candidates, you know, it probably is those people who are very active in the local community or, you know, have a particular profile within the local local faith communities, or, you know, it might be quite influential if those kind of people come out and do an endorsement and speak to their Mm. audience. So it it is difficult. And I think, you know, one of the real challenges around influencers is you're placing a lot of trust in them. You know, you can't pay these people. So you're giving you're normally giving them time, but you don't really know what they're going to subsequently say. And there is this kind of risk of potential backlash that, that could come back. So, you know, with every digital channel, there are risks and rewards, mm-hmm. but it's also, they each just take an awful lot of time to mm-hmm. cultivate. And I think, you know, every new innovation that comes is creating another demand upon ordinary yeah. campaigners. And certainly people I speak to feel they've got enough on their hands trying to get their leaflets yeah. delivered and the doors knocked, let alone... Oh, sale.
0: you're sounding so... You're sounding so live them there, Kate. <laughs> Playing to the audience. a lot of podcast. my time
1: with campaigners. Yeah. I, know, I know the struggle. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, but, yeah, that is the basic difference, is that it is legal to walk up to a letterbox and put a piece of paper through it in a way that it's not... Yeah, you've got to earn the consent to be contacted through so many of these other, you know, fancier, whizzier routes or you've got to bring the audience to you but you can walk up to the letterbox makes that traditional campaigning still massively powerful but that said you know elections shouldn't simply be run as a sort of rerun of you know 19th century tactics there are definitely things that have changed and improved and are now possible so for anyone who's listening to this podcast and is going to be running an election campaign this year what would be your top tip for them to make the most of the opportunities that data and the digital world offer?
1: Yeah, so I think I'd just say keep it simple. I think it's it's so easy to get carried away in the idea that you should be micro-targeting, you know, people who wear hats in a specific street of your constituency. And actually... Please
0: tell me that's based on a real example from your research, Kate.
1: <laughs> I'd love it if it was. <laughs> Unfortunately not. You yeah, know, but we've we've spoken to, again, as I said, kind of over mm. 300 people mm. running campaigns in different parties in different countries and you know it is often the simplest most kind of straightforward data that is the most important you know that voter id finding out if someone has actually is a regular voter and whether you need to turn them out to vote by reminding them you know that is the simple stuff and i think if you can get a good data collection operation where you are collecting accurate data and i think that accuracy is really important Hmm. and something that Often we don't like talk about enough and do training around enough in political parties. But, you know, if you can have confidence in your data, then you can do simple segmentation to kind of find patterns or types of voters or particular groups that you want to reach out to. And I think, you know, any campaign that is treating their electorate as a homogenous bounce is missing a trick nowadays. You need to be starting to identify those voters that you don't want to be speaking to. You don't want to remind them to vote. You need to be finding out who it is you need to communicate with. And, you know, that's quite a, it's a simple, it's a very long standing um, approach, but, you know, where the kind of novelty comes in is just thinking about digital and these different channels as another string to the bow. They're another place that you can collect data. They're another place that you can communicate with these groups of voters. And I think it's easiest to think along those lines rather than overcomplicating it.
0: And indeed, even for the very traditional canvassing, one of the things where data and digital has crept in to make quite a big difference is the way so much of that is now done via smartphone app, both in terms of the logistical benefits of that, but also hopefully the quality of data benefits in terms of having standard scripts and so on that people hopefully use. And that has been absolutely fascinating, Kate. And I am sure lots of listeners will be wanting to get copies of your book uh, to have a read of in when they're resting in between campaigning later in this year. So I will include links uh, to Kate's book in the show notes, as well as that Political Studies Association talk, which also has a talk from John Curtis about polling and the political landscape. So a double hit of goodies. For political geeks in that Political Studies Association talk, and I'll also include follow-ups to the various other books and bits of research that we talked about. Now, with the way that Twitter's going under Elon Musk, this podcast is no longer on there, but you can still find myself there at Mark Pack, and Kate is at Kate Domit, which is double M double T. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favorite podcast app to send some more helpful data this podcast algorithm's way but thank you hugely for your time Kate and thank you everyone for listening